You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. In light of Sam's baptism, I've decided to take this opportunity to teach and to preach on the subject matter of baptism. I haven't been able to preach on this subject since the fall of 2018, so I figured it was due to take a hard look at what baptism means and why it matters. Now, the practice of baptism is mentioned throughout the New Testament, beginning, of course, with John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, brought a baptism of repentance, calling people to turn away from their sins and to turn back towards God as he prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. The significance of baptism was demonstrated in the baptism of Jesus himself, where the triune God was pleased to put himself on display. God the Father spoke approval over God the Son as God the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Later on in Jesus' life, he affirmed the ongoing importance and centrality of baptism in the Great Commission, where he calls believers to go and to make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. We see how this great commission and this call to baptize unfolds in the book of Acts, the historical record of life in the early church. It begins with Peter's first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He preaches to a group of thousands of people from what's called every nation under heaven. People from um, the, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, and Rome. And as Peter preaches the gospel, they're cut to the heart. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And in response, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This, this call to be baptized continues with the work of Philip the Evangelist as he preaches to the Samaritans and as he had that divine encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah, riding in his chariot in Acts chapter eight. He baptizes the Samaritans, he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. It continues with a Pharisee who we know as Saul, a persecutor of the church who would later become the apostle Paul, when Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus, humbles him with blindness, sends him to Aeneas to be, uh, to be healed, um, it says in Acts chapter nine that then he was baptized. It continues then with the baptism of the Roman centurion Cornelius, the Gentile, along with his whole household under the preaching and ministry of the apostle Peter. And then with the Philippian jailer and his household in Acts chapter 16. And then with the Corinthians and the Ephesians in Acts 18 and 19. Baptism has always been a central component of the Christian life, and it's been a pillar of our life together in the church. Indeed, I think it's, it's fair to say that a church is not a faithful church without the faithful practice of baptism. If we are to call ourselves a Christian church, a body of believers that is submitted to the lordship of Christ, to worshiping him and obeying everything that he said, then we must obey what he said about baptism. We must baptize and be baptized if we are to obey the Lord Jesus. 
Now, as important as baptism may be, there are actually not very many texts in the New Testament that teach us about the theological significance of baptism, but there are a few, and uh, what God has given us in the scriptures are sufficient for us to understand why baptism is important and why we should practice it and what it stands for. The main texts are 1 Peter chapter 3, which we looked at uh, back in 2018, Colossians chapter 2, which we haven't looked at yet, and Romans chapter 6, which is the text that we're going to look at today. So these verses in Romans chapter 6 show us that although baptism only happens once in the Christian life, it's an event that creates a paradigm for the entire Christian life. Let me say that again. Baptism only happens once in the Christian life, but it creates a paradigm for the entire Christian life. Christians can look back at their baptism as a reminder of what it means to be a Christian. What they committed themselves to when they first became a Christian is what they commit themselves to doing as they continue their life as Christians. All of that symbolized in baptism. The essence of our faith, you could say, is contained in this simple act of immersion into water and immersion out of water, plunging into the immersion and the taking out of, the immersion out of water. Immersion reminds us that we have died with Christ to the power of sin. Immersion reminds us that we have risen with Christ to the power of grace. And that is the heart of the Christian life. It's dying to sin and living to God. It's putting off the old self and putting on the new. It's changing our identity as those who are in Adam to those who are now in Christ. Baptism symbolizes all of these realities and serves as a reminder of what it truly means to be a Christian from the beginning of our walk with Jesus to the end of our lifetime. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter six. We'll be looking at the first four verses today. This entire chapter is a a wonderful revelation of God's grace available to those who are united to Christ by faith, but we're only gonna be looking at the first four verses. If you don't have a Bible, these verses are printed in your bulletin where you're invited to follow along and take notes. There's some space there in the bulletin for you to do that. Romans chapter six, verses one to four. Let's read these verses together. This is the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of baptism, which reminds us of the gospel, what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done to save us and to give us a new nature that is committed no longer to the pursuit of sin, but to the pursuit of righteousness, what pleases you, what abounds in love for you and for neighbor. We pray your blessing over the preaching of your word now, that you would speak into our hearts by your Holy Spirit and transform us more into the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, the title of this sermon is Baptism from Death to Life. Baptism from Death to Life. My aim today is to show you that baptism symbolizes the Christian's freedom from the penalty and power of sin. Baptism symbolizes the Christian's freedom from the penalty and power of sin. We're gonna break up our text today into three sections. First, the question. Second, the symbol. And third, the point. The question, the symbol, and the point. First, the question. Our text today, as you can see, contains a number of different questions. But most of the questions in this text aren't so much question-seeking answers as they are rhetorical devices that the Apostle Paul is using to make a point. The the real question that he's trying to answer is found in verse 1. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This question arises from what he had said earlier in Romans chapter 5. He has many things that he's saying in Romans chapter 5, but one of the things he says is this. The worse sin became in the world, the more grace God supplied. The worse sin became in the world, the more grace God supplied. Paul pointed out that you could break up the history of the world into two eras. The era before the law was given and the era after the law was given. The moral law given under Moses summarized by the Ten Commandments. In the era before the law was given, there was already sin. Adam and his descendants were involved in sinning against God, doing what was wrong, doing what was wicked and evil in the sight of God, even before the law was given. But God held them to account for their sin, which is why they died. Death was a punishment for their sin. But then, as the second era begins, the the era of the law, God gives Israel, the law of Moses, the moral standards by which he expects them to live. And it was meant to, uh, on one level, to restrain sin and to teach his people how to honor him and how to live. But it really made no difference. People kept sinning, they kept worshiping idols, they kept treating each other poorly, they kept living for themselves. Really, the only difference between the first era before the law And the second era after the law was that the sinfulness of humanity increased. Because now, in the second era, they knew exactly what God required of them. They had the law, they had God's commandments, and yet they still chose to deliberately rebel against them. And so the law increased, you could say, the law increased the sinfulness of sin. But Paul says that where sin increased, grace increased abounded all the more. And we might have expected that an increase in the sinfulness of sin would have resulted in an increase in judgment over that sin. And if God had chosen to do that, it would have been his prerogative, he would have been right to do so, it would have been just. But instead of increasing judgment, God increased his grace. He showed more patience. He expressed more affection. And ultimately, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world so that we could be forgiven. God is willing to meet humanity's increasing sin with ever-increasing grace. And that's one of Paul's main points from chapter 5. And now in chapter 6, 
he continues that discussion by anticipating one of the potential implications. He knows that if the gospel teaches that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, then people might start asking, then why can't we keep sinning? Why can't we keep sinning? After all, God is just gonna give us more grace. If grace abounds where sin abounds, then what motivation do we have to stop sinning? Well, I wonder if that's something you've ever thought. You know, this question in verse one isn't just a theoretical one. It's one that is present in many of our daily lives. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, but you have some vague concept of God as loving and accepting. And so you think, well, it doesn't really matter how I live. God's always gonna love me. He's always gonna be there for me. Or perhaps you're here and you're a Christian, but you've made some moral compromises in your life. You're doing something that you know is wrong, but you think, well, it's okay. God is always going to forgive me. As long as I believe in my heart that Jesus died for my sins, I'm going to heaven. God's gonna forgive me. There's always gonna be more grace. I have nothing to be concerned about. Well, if that's you, then you've already asked for yourself this question in verse one, and you've answered it. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Your answer is, of course, absolutely. There is nothing wrong with that. There's always gonna be more grace, so there can always be more sin. But that's not how Paul answers the question. Paul, who is writing, not in his own authority, but in God's authority as a Holy Spirit-inspired author of scripture, says in verse two, he says, by no means, by no means, Means You can sense the emotion, perhaps even the anger in his response that people would even ask that question. He's saying, he's saying what are you thinking? This, this very thought of, of people who say that they're Christians recklessly, deliberately charging headlong into sin, presuming on the grace of God, he says, are you crazy? Of course you can't live like that. By no means are you to think like that or to live like that. But why? Why, Paul? Isn't it a logical implication that if grace, if sin increases, grace abounds, that we can just keep sinning? Now notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, no, you're wrong. Grace is going to run out. God's got a quota on grace. And if you meet that quota, There's no more grace for you. That's not what he says. He makes it crystal clear that this isn't a matter of how much grace is available. It's a matter of how much grace has changed us. Paul makes the point in verse two. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying that grace hasn't just resulted in the forgiveness of sins. Grace has resulted in freedom from sin. People who truly have the grace of God no longer want to sin because they've died to it. I'm gonna try to use an analogy here that's gonna seem a little weird, but it's the best way I could think of this week to illustrate the absurdity of the question in verse one. You know, my family, we love to go to the Toronto Zoo. We just uh, ended our second one-year membership in the fall. Every time we have a membership, we go at least 10 times and we go and see uh, the same exhibits. My favorite exhibit 
is the polar bear exhibit. If you've seen those polar bears, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about because you, 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 you go and you see them and what, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're napping in the sun. They're swimming lengths in that little swimming pool. I mean, it's, it's really amazing how human they almost seem, isn't it? You, you, you see them swimming and then they push off the wall and they're swimming on their back and then they go into the sun and everybody thinks they're so cute. And then when it's mealtime, well, what do they do in mealtime? Well, the food rains from the sky into their mouths. You know, they don't have to hunt for it. They don't need to live off their belly fat. They, 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 just, they just open their mouths and, and God f- fills their mouths. Well, if, if you're like me, you might have had a moment where you said, I wish I were a polar bear. I mean, that's, that's the life. They're living the dream. I wish I were a polar bear. But that could never be me. And that could never be you because we are not polar bears. We are humans. We don't belong in the zoo. We are not meant to be subject to the watching humorous gaze of observers who are visiting the zoo. Now we know that wishing that we were polar bears is a ridiculous notion. And yet, that's what Christians are saying if they say they want to continue living as sinners. That's what they're saying. They're saying they want to be something that they aren't because believers in Jesus have died to sin. We no longer live for the pleasures of sin and we no no longer live under the power of sin. For a Christian to say that he or she wants to live as a sinner is as crazy as saying that he or she wants to be a polar bear because true Christians don't want to sin They have died to sin. And if they have died to sin, then sin no longer characterizes who they are and what they want. So if someone says that they're a Christian, they say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I'm gonna live the way that I want to because God's gonna forgive me. There's always gonna be more grace. They prove that they're still a polar bear and not a Christian. They are still in their sins and under its dominion. The grace of God has not reach them. But if someone has truly been touched by the grace of God, their response to the question in verse one, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? is gonna be the same as Paul's. By no means. Why, why would I think about going back to the filth of sin? The very things, the acts that put Jesus on the cross. Why would I do that? I would never Would God give a true Christian more grace for more sin? Absolutely. But would a Christian, a true Christian, presume on that grace? Absolutely not. Paul is showing us that as interesting as the question in verse one may be, it suggests a lifestyle that is simply unthinkable for anyone who is truly a Christian. True Christians do not presume on God's grace. They respond to God's grace with joyful obedience. Thinking about deliberately living in sin is as crazy to the Christian as thinking about living like a polar bear. That is not who we are. By God's grace, we're something different now. We are people who have died to sin and no longer live under its power. Now, that that doesn't mean that we will no longer sin that we will never sin again, we will sin. And that does not mean that sin will never be attractive to us again. It will be attractive. We have 
died to sin, and yet the reality of indwelling sin remains. It is the now and the not yet. We have died, but the final death to sin is still to come. True Christians will continue to sin. True Christians will continue to find sin attractive. But when it is attractive, and when we give into it, grace doesn't drive us farther away from God and further into sin. It drives us back to God in repentance into the sweetness of his grace where we will ever always find more. Grace forgives and frees without limit. But it's not so that we can jump back into its filth. But so that we can stay out of it and live truly satisfied by the all-satisfying grace of God. Douglas Moo, who has written perhaps the most definitive commentary on the book of Romans, puts it like this. The reign of grace, far from encouraging sin, is the only means by which sin can truly be defeated. So this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, in Paul's answer, animates the entire chapter. We're not gonna be able to see how he develops these ideas more fully, but we can see what he does next which is he points the reader and us to the symbolism of baptism, which leads to our second point, the symbol. In verse three, he asks the last of his rhetorical questions as he drives home his point that the Christian life cannot and will not be characterized by a pattern of deliberate sin. He asks, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now what Paul's doing here is he's reminding the Roman Christians about their baptism. Now notice what he says in verse three. He says, all of us who have been baptized, all of us, not those of us who have been baptized, all of us, Paul as a writer, and all of the Christians in Rome who were reading this letter, all of us have been baptized. Not just the spiritually mature, not just those who had proven that they were good enough. Baptism is for all who profess faith in Christ. God's intention has always been that baptism should mark the beginning of the Christian life. Not the midpoint, not the end, but the beginning of the Christian life is marked by baptism. That's apparent in the New Testament and it's apparent in our text today. But it is not how we tend to think about baptism, is it? Especially for those who have grown up in Baptist circles. We think about baptism as a sort of spiritual graduation. You know, theology 101, I passed that. Got a a B plus, but I passed. Sanctification 101, I'm doing a little bit better here. So yeah, I've, I've passed that going to church every Sunday, uh, I've passed that, read your Bible every day. Well, that, was, that one was a little bit of a struggle, but, but I've passed that. Once I've passed all that, then I'm ready to be baptized. When I've put a handle on my sin, when I no longer have any more doubts to wrestle with, that is when baptism is for me. But that is not what baptism is. Baptism isn't graduation. Baptism is initiation. Baptism isn't graduation, it's initiation. It's not the mark of the one who has arrived. It's the mark of the one who has begun. Now Jesus gave us two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
They both play important but distinct roles in the Christian life. Baptism is meant to symbolize our entry into Christ within the church. The Lord's Supper is meant to symbolize our continued participation in Christ within the church. One is entry and one is continued participation. Christians today, however, tend to actually do it the other way around. You know, people who have never been baptized participate in the Lord's Supper. And when they do that, what they're doing is they're declaring that they're part of the local church, they're part of the body of Christ, even before they've announced that they've joined it. Now, this is something that the elders of our church have wanted to address for a while, but haven't had occasion to do so until now. The overwhelming pattern in the New Testament is baptism, then communion. You join, and then you participate. And so if you are participating in communion, but have never been baptized, the question for you isn't so much, why are you participating in communion? Because I don't think it's a hard and fast law or rule. It's a pattern that we want to honor. The question for you is, what's holding you back from baptism? What's holding you back? Well, if it's the fact that you're not sure if you believe the gospel, or you're questioning, questioning whether you want to become a follower of Jesus, then those are good reasons. Those are good reasons to not be baptized. Don't get baptized, but don't participate in the Lord's Supper either. The Lord's Supper is for believers. That doesn't mean at all that it's for the spiritually elite, for those who no longer sin, who are spiritually blameless, but it does mean it's for those who know who they are in Christ. It's for ordinary people who still struggle with sins and doubts and questions, but at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they're asked, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like you? And the only way for you to receive forgiveness of sins is by faith, receiving this as a gift. Then baptism is for you. Sorry, the Lord's Supper is for you. But if the question why you're holding back from baptism is because you still sin or because you still struggle to read your Bible or because you don't love God the way you should or perhaps sometimes you waste your time on the phone or because you find that you love the world too much, if it's any of these things and yet you believe all those things about Christ, about his life, death, and resurrection, and you have committed yourself to repenting of those sins and following Jesus as your Lord, and you're committed to participating in the life of the church for your growth and the growth of others. Those, those simple introductory steps to the Christian life, if that's what describes your beliefs, then baptism is for you. Baptism isn't about who we've made ourselves to be. It's about who God has made us in Christ. You know, verse three says that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus you know, I was listening to a sermon on this text by the Scottish theologian and pastor Sinclair Ferguson, which by the way, if you've never read a book by him or listened to a sermon by him, um, you will listen to uh, some of the most powerful teaching and preaching that you've ever heard. Sinclair Ferguson, he calls baptism a naming ceremony, a naming ceremony. He says, before we came to Christ, we were in Adam. We were called by his name. We were in him as his physical and spiritual descendants under his curse and living under the dominion of his original sin. But when we were baptized into Christ, 
We changed our name. We're no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. We no longer live under the curse of Adam. We live under the grace of Christ, the second Adam. Now this union with Christ reminds us and assures us that we have died to sin. Because Paul's saying here, if he died, then we died also. Our sinful nature died with him. That's what Paul's saying in verses three and four. We were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Jesus didn't just die to pay the penalty for our sins. He died to put our sinful nature to death. I love how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter two, where he says, I, that is I in the sinful nature, I in the uh, name of Adam under his curse, under the dominion of his original sin, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now we need to be clear here, because baptism itself doesn't do any of these things. Nothing mystical happens when a person is plunged into the water and taken out. That is not the point in time when their, their sinful nature is put to death and when they are given new life. When Paul says we were baptized into his death, into the death of Christ, he's using the word baptism as a shorthand for the entire conversion experience. And so today we might say, well, I accepted Jesus into my heart or I believed that Jesus was my savior when I was 18 years old. But back then in the early church, they would have said, I was baptized when I was 18 years old. Baptism and conversion were so intimately tied that the word baptism could be used as a short form for the entire conversion process. That's what Paul is saying here. When he speaks about baptism, he's also speaking about what baptism symbolizes, being converted to Christ by faith. Because it wasn't baptism that put our sinful nature to death, it was Christ. It was Christ. And he gave us the benefits of his death, of putting our sinful nature to death at the moment that we first trusted him, at the new birth. He laid it in the tomb with him and gave us the benefits of his death when we first came to saving faith in him. What baptism does is it commemorates that occasion, that reality, and it gives us a physical event to look back to so that we would always be reminded that Christ's death has put our sinful nature to death as well. And that's what Paul is helping his readers do in verses three and four. He's turning the minds of the Roman Christians back to their baptism. Remember, remember your baptism and remember what it stands for. It stands for the death of your sin. He's helping them remember that just, just as they were buried in the waters of baptism, so also they were buried with Christ through faith when they first believed. You know, Martin Luther once said, there is on earth no greater comfort than baptism. Wow, what a, what a statement and how countercultural compared to what we believe about the significance of baptism. You know, he was known when he would struggle with sin's condemnation or when he would struggle with the assurance of salvation. He was known to shout out, I am baptized, I am baptized, I am baptized. Baptism comforts us because it points us to Christ. 
And it reminds us of what he has done to put our sin to death. And so that is what we have the opportunity to do every time we witness a baptism. We get a chance to celebrate that God is at work and he is saving sinners. He is taking people who are slaves to sin and freeing them from it. He is at work. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. And today we rejoice that God has done that again. He has given the gift of repentance to our friend Sam. But we also get an opportunity to recall our own baptism. Our own baptism and the grace of God that freed us and continues to free us from our sin. Baptism is meant to push us further in the process of sanctification. That's the simplest way I can put it. Baptism is meant to put fresh wind in our sails to pursue holiness and obedience to God as we remember that what Christ has done is to free us from the power of sin so that we can live new life in him. We've examined the question, we've been reminded of the symbol, and now we get to Paul's point, leading to our third point, the point. It's not very original. Paul's point isn't merely that the Christian life involves dying to sin. You think about how our culture thinks about what Christianity is about. It's all about the no's. Can't do that, can't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's all about the negatives. It's all about the subtractions. But Paul points out that the Christian life is not just about losing, it is about losing, but it's about losing in order to gain. It's about cutting off what's corrupted and evil so that you can gain true life. That's what he says in verse four. Look at this verse with me. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, here, I'm gonna point you to the real point of all this, of the real point of dying to your sin. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That is the point of it all. That is the point. It is newness of life. It is life as it was meant to be lived in loving fellowship with God and with neighbor. When we look around at the world, when we consider its greed, its violence, its self-centered living, its brokenness, we should be thinking, this, this isn't what life is supposed to be like. Or when we look inward at our own selfishness, at the presence of our own indwelling sin that causes us to lash out at our kids or ignore our spouses or engross ourselves in our screens as the needy who are all around us suffer alone. We're meant to think this isn't what God intended for me. This isn't true life. Well, Christ has come to give you newness of life. Newness of life. And not just that you would taste it once in a while, but that you would walk in it. That's what he says in verse four, that we too might walk, might walk in newness of life. This newness of life is meant to characterize every step that we take, every decision that we make, every word that we speak, everything that we do, every thought that we have, every motive that causes us to change. Everything is meant to be characterized by this newness of life. 
a life of love, a life of kindness, a life surrendered to God's benevolent authority and to the truth of his word. Christ offers this life to all, but in order to receive it, you need to be called by his name. You must be baptized into Christ Jesus because only in the death and the resurrection of Christ can you find death and resurrection in your soul. Baptism reminds us that if we are to live, we must die. Listen, baptism reminds us that if we are to live, we must die. For us to emerge from the waters, we must first be plunged into the waters. Living in Christ requires dying to sin. You can't have both. You want newness of life, but you want to cling to your sin. There's no newness of life there. Life in Christ requires death to sin. That's the only way to walk in the newness of life. And that's what Jesus himself taught. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me, for my sake, will save it. True life is found in sin's death. And the only way we can put sin to death is by being joint to Christ, being baptized into Christ Jesus, into his life, into his death, and into his resurrection. All of this is symbolized in baptism. The immersion symbolizes dying with Christ, and the immersion out of the water symbolizes rising with Christ. We die to sin so that we live to God. We are buried with Christ so that we can be raised to live righteously. We put off the old self so that we can put on the new. We transfer our allegiance to the first Adam, who sinned, and place it in the second Adam, who didn't. Baptism is meant to remind us that the Christian life is a life of sanctification, of increasingly growing in love with God and with what God loves, and increasingly growing to hate what is evil, to hate what God hates, so that we might also walk in newness of life. And so, do you believe that new life is found in Christ? Do you believe that he died for your sins and he died to put your sins to death and that he rose again to give you the newness of life? Then come and speak to me, to one of our pastors about baptism. Baptism isn't graduation. Baptism is initiation. It's not the mark of the one who has arrived. It is the mark of the one who has begun. And if you're here today and you're not sure about what you believe about Jesus, that's all right. All of us have been on that journey of finding out who this Jesus is. You need to discover who Jesus is before you can rest in what Jesus has done. And that takes time. That takes your friends talking to you and telling you about the saving power of the gospel and the satisfaction for your soul that you can find in him and in him alone. If you will allow us, our church, our little church here called Sovereign Grace, we are willing to help you on this journey so that maybe one day you also will be able to join us in walking in the newness of life. But for today, we are here to rejoice with God and with the heavenly hosts that Sam Mock has died to sin and lives to newness of life. We rejoice 
that he has been united to Christ by faith, receiving all the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we rejoice that his desire is to live not for his glory, but for God's. God alone is worthy to be praised. May he receive the glory today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving me, for revealing the beauties of Christ to me. When I was young and arrogant and desired to live apart from you, you reached down into my darkness and joined me to Christ. And uh, it is something I am grateful for every day. We're thankful for how you've done the same in Sam. And we're thankful that you have done that for everyone here who is in Christ. We pray that this afternoon would be an occasion of great celebration as we are reminded through the sacrament of baptism of what Christ has done for us. We have died to sin in his death and we have risen in his resurrection to the newness of life. May we walk in this life for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.